Today, every answer matters more than ever before. Because whether it's about health, deliveries, or finance, some things just can't wait. That's why IBM is helping businesses manage millions of calls, texts, and chats with Watson Assistant. It's conversational AI designed to help your customers find the answers they need faster, no matter the industry. Let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com slash watsonassistant to learn more. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends? I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain you, but to educate and teach you, so call me at 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. If you want to be a good investor, you need to be willing to learn from everyone. Last night, incredibly smart man, David Rubenstein, the co-CEO of a legendary private equity firm, the Carlyle Group, told a CNBC net-net gathering in Washington that what he's worried about for the next two years is an unanticipated geopolitical event, a so-called black swan. Call me a worry word, but I have a list of things that dog me. And after sedate like today, sedate day, I mean, really not much happened. I mean, Dow dipped 40 points, closed badly at the end of the day. S&P declining 0.01%, NASDAQ gaining 0.21%. I think it's worth going over my top 10 worries as we head into 2018. Before I give you the list, though, let me just say I'm not a big fan of the term black swan. The idea that something horrible and totally unexpected could always be on the horizon. Look, we live in an unpredictable era, so we have to be ready for anything. A black swan is the thing you don't see coming. But we've got more than enough concerns that can be anticipated. So let me tell you what weighs on me every day when I wake up at, I don't know, 3.30 and tweet or work out or whatever. First... I'm very concerned about what's going to happen with the tax plan. For the longest time, I didn't really focus on the details because I didn't think uh, Congress was capable of passing such a sweeping change to the tax code without any bipartisan cover, even any hearings. Well, they proved me wrong. Instead, it looks like the Republican Congress is on the verge of passing a bill where we have almost no idea what it says, a bill where much of the text looks like it was written on a cocktail napkin because they pretty much drafted the darn thing uh, the night before the vote. But we know it'll lower corporate taxes. And at the very least, that will spur more dividends, more buybacks, more infrastructure, more spend on growth. For example, Home Depot held a terrific analyst meeting today. And while I liked everything they had to say about the robust housing market and how they're taking market share and how they are absolutely going to reinvest in the business if they get the cash, I recognize this stock's been bid up from the, from, like a lot of retailers because Home Depot has a 36% tax rate. It's almost entirely domestic. That rate should come down closer to 20%, and that would be fabulous. This is why we've had this gigantic rotation of the internationally oriented companies and into the domestics like Home Depot. I'm thrilled about this. But if this bill somehow manages to fall apart in the conference committee, I think you'll see a wholesale shift back to the internationals, and you'll regret paying anywhere near these prices for the fabulous stock that is the fabulous company, Home Depot. The domestic stocks now need this bill to pass, or they're going to sell off, and we're going to have a real deep sell-off. But as much as it looks like a sure thing, the process has been so slapdash, bill so unpopular in some ways, that I feel uncomfortable just assuming it'll go through. 
By the same token, a government shutdown is now a real possibility in the not-too-distant future, and that could do some damage again because people aren't thinking about it. I'm worried. My second worry? I'm concerned that there's no way North Korea can be deterred from its missile program, and the President of the United States seems like he won't take no for an answer. Look, nobody wants Kim Jong-un to have nuclear ICBMs. But there's no way to take the nukes away from him without causing millions of casualties that I can come up with. I remember in kindergarten going into fallout shelters. I remember having to do drills every week where I put my head into a cubby in case nuclear war broke out. I know, somehow it seems like a suboptimal solution. I remember the sky being dark with bombers from the nearby Willow Grove Naval Air Force Base as planes ready to bomb Cuba after the Bay of Pigs. We don't want to go back there. You don't think about stocks when that happens. We also have the potential for a new blow-up in the Middle East because President Trump just recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, antagonizing the rest of the region for no actual discernible purpose. This market's not ready for another ground war in the Middle East, and while I don't think that will happen, it's certainly on my radar screen. And remember, put my politics aside. I'm talking about uh, stocks, okay? Third, there's Special Prosecutor Robert Mueller's investigation to President Trump and his compadre's ties to Russia. I often find the whole thing abstruse. I mean, aren't you allowed to talk to Russia? I mean, but having lived through the impeachment of Richard Nixon, I know the stock market's in trouble if Mueller finds anything that leads to an indictment of the president. You should be worried, too. Fourth, I'm concerned about valuation. Or to be more accurate, I'm concerned that so many other people are worried about valuation. There's so many strategists who want to pull the plug on their bullishness come year end that I wouldn't be surprised if we get a beginning of the year sell-off. I bet you the first 10 days of January could be tough. Fifth, all right, I know I'm going to get heckled and the sports and the skippers and the chiefs and the sparkies are going to come out and hurt me on, on Twitter. But I am worried about cryptocurrencies, especially Bitcoin. Somehow Bitcoin, the most speculative thing out there, is regarded as an investment. An investment. And what's roulette? A super investment? I mean, well, craps. I mean, craps must be like blue chip, right? I mean, isn't that? I mean, what do you think? The, the wheel they have there? I mean, how about a slot machine? That must be like U.S. government currency. I mean, this is crazy. This is some non-stock market-related froth that I think could spill into our world via futures and ETFs. And whatever kind of device exchanges create to equitize Bitcoin, because they want to profit off it, that's what they do. I've tried to cordon the darn thing off both mentally and actually. But it's too big a story to ignore. And I think at this point, it's no different from gambling. I'm not kidding. Look, the Bitcoin evangelists, they've been dead right. You guys are geniuses, okay? Stip, you're geniuses. But at a certain point, the bubble could burst. And it's not going to be pretty for even for stocks, even though it should be. Six, I'm concerned about the, the moment when we stop wishing for rate hikes and we start getting afraid of them. We all know the economy right now is strong enough to handle the Fed's bumping up of rates. And we're thrilled that the bank stocks are running on it. But I've been through many tightening cycles in my time. And sooner or later, we will come to dread the next rate hike. When that happens, stocks do not fare well. And by the way, it happens ahead of the rate hike. It doesn't happen after. Seven, I'm getting worried about this antitrust. I mean, a huge component of the bull case is the fact that companies are interested in buying other companies. But if the antitrust division is going to go out of its way to stop a deal that makes no sense that it should be stopped, ATT, Time Warner, does that mean the golden age of the takeover has come to an end? We don't want this. Now, some people think it's just the White House trying to punish CNN, which belongs to Time Warner. I don't care. All I'm saying is that if they're going to start enforcing antitrust law this broadly, it'll take away one of the key props to the bull. I mean, don't we want a Disney or a Comcast parent company, this network, to be able to buy Fox? Don't we want Broadcom nice quarter tonight to snag Qualcomm? I mean, yes, if we're bulls. Eighth, 
The loss of the state and local tax deduction is going to cause huge ripples throughout many important regions, especially when it comes to spending and housing. we got to keep an eye on big cities in New York, New Jersey, California. It could be a major shock to the system that's being underestimated, particularly if you're in one of the other 47 states not to have a problem. In the same way, number nine, I'm worried about the cost of health care for millions of Americans. Again, we're not being political. I just look at the bill. I think there's a reason why the dollar stores and Walmart are doing particularly well. Why? Because the average worker is poorer than we believe, and the health care t- system takes too much of their paycheck, and it's just getting worse. Again, not being political. I'm just saying that if Washington lets the insurers dictate how much we have to pay, you know it's going to hurt all of us. It's going to hurt the whole economy. That's a statement. That's a fact. Finally, I'm concerned about cyber attacks. Now, there are too many devices and records and Internet of Things and personal computers and storage and uh, you know, unmanned vehicle cars and whatever not to be worried. Candidly, if I didn't interview the CEOs of many of these companies, I wouldn't be that worried. But I do. I talk to them. I talk to them offline, talk to them online, whatever. And frankly, it's something big hasn't happened already, and it's shocking. I fear it will. And when it does, there will be major financial consequences. And I'm not talking about to just make good on your credit card, okay? Now, of course, there are tons of other worries. What industry will Amazon destroy next? What happens if people stop buying iPhones? What happens if China goes bust? What if we put tariffs up for China? Uh, It all matter. But here's the bottom line. I gave you this list of my worries because I want you to be ready and to develop one yourself. We don't want any unexpected black swans. Now they're not black swans. I just identified them. And the only way to prevent them is by hammering out all of your concerns so that you're prepared for your portfolio for anything. Dave in New York. Dave. Hey, booyah, Jimmy. Booyah, Dave. Hey, uh, I have a question on Nucor. Uh, it's more technical. I'm looking at a five-year chart, and it was checking up and had resistance at 55, and it looks like it broke out of that, and it's testing it for, like, the last year. I was wondering if you can confirm that that's uh, – that's a good place for our entry on that stock. Okay, and, I think it you is. Like the stock I, I, overall. I, you know, we own it for the Chapel Trust. Candidly, we scaled some back because it was like one of our biggest positions, uh, and we wanted to be ready for if it drops down at all. But I've got to tell you, you're dead right. I, and I think Nucor's in a real entry position. They just need to have a real good quarter, and they haven't in a very long time. Vincent, New York. Vincent. Hi there, Jim. Thanks for giving my call. Um, I need some wisdom. I bought some Corning stock back in um, 2002. I was watching it, and it went sky high. And then when it started to go down, I had some uh, money left over from a house I sold. Okay. And I thought I'd invested in it. Um, I bought it for like $70, which I thought was a good deal because um, when I was looking in the papers and stuff, it was up to $300, which I can't find anywhere online now. But... um, now it's $30. I've had it for 15 years. What do you think? Vincent, you've waited this long. Don't sell it. And I remember those heydays. That's when we were doing glass fiber everywhere. That was going to be the way we hooked up everybody. Now, this company is in a major renaissance. Uh, remember, we heard Tim Cook from Apple talk about doing a joint venture with him. I think Corning's future is bright. To sell it now would be a very big mistake. Sure, there are just falsifiable worries out there. I got a whole list of them. But if you know them ahead of time, you are better prepared to ready your game plan in case any or all of them come true. Remember, it's not political. I am talking about things that are disconcerting. Oh, man, buddy, tonight, U.S. Concrete just hit a fresh 52-week high. So what's behind that? Got me. Tonight, I'm sitting down with the CEO to find out how it's heading higher. 
Then it's a company that's behind everything from construction to movies to automobiles. But one of 2017's hottest momentum stocks has lost its momentum as of late. So what should you be doing with Autodesk? I'm investigating, and don't forget, it took down the whole cloud. And with more than 30 years in the restaurant business, I'm talking with Panera founder Ron Shake about what he's seeing in the industry and the short-termism that we all dislike. Stick with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Sometimes you look at that new Hylas, and all you can think is that old Sesame Street song. One of these things is not like the others. And that's how I felt when U.S. Concrete, USCR, made a new 52-week high yesterday. Now, if you told me the stock would be at these levels a year ago, right after the election, I would have believed you. But a year ago, people still believed we could get a huge infrastructure package, which would be a major boon for a company like U.S. Concrete. And, well, it's concrete. There's no way now we're going to get a trillion-dollar infrastructure package from this Congress, especially not on the heels of a trillion-dollar tax cut. Even Washington is not that irresponsible. A year ago, Trump's border wall seemed like it might be a real project. And while I know the wall's a divisive issue, we can all agree that it would require a lot of building materials. But so far, it's just eight prototypes near San Diego. Yeah, here's the stock. Just a few points from that 52-week high today, up 24% for the year. And until today's modest pullback, the stock has rallied 10 points over six straight trading days. Mainly, I think, because it's a domestic operator and the domestics are about to get a big tax cut. Still, I'm a little confused, so let's dig deep with Bill Sandbrook. He's the president and CEO of U.S. Concrete. Get a better sense of what's happening with his company. Mr. Sandbrook, welcome back to Mad Money. Good to see you, Bill. Good to see you, Jim. Thank you. These are amazing days, Bill. I mean, because... We did hope that Washington was going to do the building. Mm-hmm. You have gigantic, every big project I find your name. But these are all private enterprise. That's just doing the building, right? Right. And no, that's correct. 56% of our projects are commercial industrial projects that have nothing to do with infrastructure spend or even to do with residential, you know, single family or multifamily housing. So th- those, those parts of the economy in the areas that we operate are very vibrant right now. No, so you are the dominant company in Texas, from what I can tell. And everyone seems to be, if you had to ask me where a new headquarters is going, I look at the list of stuff you're building, and they're going there. Yeah, to Dallas-Fort Worth yes. specifically. Toyota, um, we're doing Facebook uh, data center there. It's not just campuses. It's, right. it's high tech. We've talked about that before. All these major infrastructure projects that need to support these massive server buildings right. take a lot of concrete. But Texas and Dallas specifically is very business friendly, and a lot of corporate headquarters are coming there that we that we partake in. Well, when I look at this new the tax bill and they have the uh, state and local no mm-hmm. deduction, I have to believe this is the beginning of the exodus to Texas mm-hmm. in a place right in your hands. Right. And there are no income taxes in Texas, so it plays right into our hands. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, as someone who's a New Yorker, every time I see a big project, mm-hmm. every bridge, you're right. there. Right. Every single bridge. Right. Every single big project, whether it be the World Financial Center, World Trade Center. Yes. You have Hudson Yards. We have Hudson Yards. We have the Gothels Bridge, Bayonne Bridge, parts of the Tappan Zee Bridge, um, the Hudson Yards. As you said, we've done most of the World Trade Center work. And LaGuardia, the biggest project going on now, we have. Well, what I, what, 
these all have in common is a certain expertise that I think you must have. Mm -hmm. These are projects that are almost impossible to do where you're disrupting everybody. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure you're being told, listen, we want this, whatever you're doing, we got to operate it anyway. So is that something right. U.S. Concrete really excels at? It excels both on the product specifications and the service levels needed. There's a massive amount of concrete that has to be poured in a very short period of time to minimize disruption to the, the project schedule, to the, the traveling public, to the, to the bridge flow of traffic. And the scheduling is, is a, a critical part of that, and we're very good at it. Now, you beat out Vol a larger company, Vulcan, to buy this mm -hmm. Polaris. Why, right. did you, why were you willing to do that, given the fact they could have kept bidding and taken it up? Right. No, that's very, it's a very good point. It's, I think it's more valuable to us to self-supply our own operations. Right. We have downstream assets that Vulcan didn't have in those markets, specifically in San Francisco and Oakland. So we can synergize the internal use of that stone much easier than they could. Do you think your business, your book of business, is a good judge of how the country's doing? I think so, especially the major metropolitan areas. Well, the reason I say that is because you, know, you had a chart in your, in your mm -hmm. deck which shows you where we think we are. Right. In the expansion. Right. And you actually, you know, you were kind of in the middle and then right. you moved it back to I, the earlier. And, and Tell I, me about that. I, I thought that was yeah. incredibly positive. Well, I, I, we're going to have tax reform now. I think that's going to extend the cycle. There's going to be more disposable income. We're going to have more money to spend on growing our business to buy more trucks and to expand our markets. As you said, the Polaris acquisition now opens up the Los Angeles market to us, which is right in our wheelhouse of, of the type of things we do in New York. Why do I hear so many of the economists say it won't matter the economy, that it's not going to grow with this? I mean, you are living proof. This mm -hmm. could be huge for the country. Well, we're not going to dividend back. And right. We're not going to do buybacks. We're going to reinvest in our business to grow our EBITDA through the, what we do as a business. Well, I know you're passionate about that, but you're also passionate about <laughs> what's happened this weekend, so I'm going to let you say it. Yeah. Go Army. Beat Navy. <laughs> there you go. Well, Bill, you've been an inspiration, and we loved going to your, head, to your building in Brooklyn, and you've just been a standout. Thank okay, you so much. Thanks. Bill right, Sandbrook, Thank you. This is President and CEO of U.S. Concrete, this stock is on a mission to go higher. Thank you right. so much. When a beloved momentum stock loses its momentum. The results are never pretty. Just look at what happened to Autodesk, the king of computer-aided design software in the last few weeks. Heading into Thanksgiving, Autodesk was one of the top 20 best-performing stocks in the S&P 500 for 2017. This thing was on fire, up more than 70% year-to-date. It was a leader in the cloud, a leader in tech, a leader in software. And then Autodesk reported a less-than-perfect quarter. Not bad. Just not fabulously great like we come to expect. And the stock got taken to the woodshed, plummeting from 130 to 109 in a single session. That's a hideous 16% decline. So what happened here? Did they miss the numbers by a mile? Did they slash their guidance? Did they tell you the business is headed for a serious slowdown? Sell, 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 Hold your horses. Autodesk sales and earnings actually came in a little better than expected. However, the company's outlook for both the next quarter and the full fiscal year came in a bit light. A bit. And management's commentary on the conference call was subdued. That's not what we come to expect from Autodesk. These guys tend to give you a big beat. And when they feel good about the business, they tell a great story. House of pleasure. This time they sounded less optimistic. Not negative. But there was a lot less enthusiasm. It was kind of like, eh. 
And yet this was the darling. It set off a decline in this group that we haven't recovered from yet. To make matters worse, Autodesk announced a restructuring plan. Now, uh, there's nothing wrong with that in itself. Good restructuring has been the backbone of many a terrific turnaround. But it implies that things aren't going well. And since when does Autodesk need to turn things around? I thought they were doing great. I thought the things had already turned. You typically don't roll out a restructuring plan when your business is firing on all cylinders, right? Put it all together and you can understand why Autodesk stocks sold off so hard two and a half weeks ago that it was barely dinged by the recent rotation out of technology because it had already come down dramatically. Actually, it was the precursor. A lot of people feel it started the decline. Now, I don't want to overstate this. Autodesk is still up 45% of the year, giving us a nice 27% gain since I started recommending it in February. But when you see a market darling turn on a dime like this and get slammed, you got to circle back to the story and ask yourself a simple question. Are we dealing with a broken stock or a broken company? In other words, did Autodesk merely hit a speed bump or did it crash into a retaining wall at 80 miles an hour? Might as well just write it off. First of all, for those of you who don't remember, this company has an unparalleled position in the computer-aided design, or CAD space. You may not interact with their products, and I think that really hurts the the, uh, story itself because they're not part of your day-to-day life. But if you've ever driven a high-performance car or admired a towering new skyscraper or watched a great movie or even used a smartphone, chances are it's something that Autodesk Software helped to design. They've got their hands in everything from architecture to engineering to construction to manufacturing to media and entertainment. I recommended the stock about 10 months, 10 months ago, highlighting Autodesk as the best tech company you've never heard of. Why did I suddenly decide to embrace this stock after years of neglecting its existence? Because Autodesk had started doing something that had already worked wonders at Adobe, another enterprise-oriented software company that dominates its end markets. They started moving to the cloud. The shift has been terrific for Adobe, and I figure it would be equally terrific for Autodesk. Sure enough, the stock immediately took off, running from 84 bucks back in February up to 130 at its highs, and with good reason. Autodesk reported a series of strong quarters. In August, the company delivered a robust top and bottom line beat with subscription plan annualizing recurring revenue. That's the key uh, uh, metric. Rising 94% year over year, and it's all the cloud. Even better, the company gave you a bullish outlook for the third quarter in the full year. While Autodesk wasn't yet profitable because they were spending so much to grow the cloud business, the subscriber forecasts were very encouraging. And management's commentary on the conference call was just flat-out bullish. Autodesk's new CEO, Andrew Adagnos, talked about broad-based strength across all subscription plans, types, and geographies. After that quarter, the stock resumed its march higher, and by early November, the analysts were flogging this one hard. On November 13th, Research firm Guggenheim upgraded Autodesk from neutral to buy and raised its price target to 150. Three days later, Canaccord and KeyBank raised their price targets too. Then on the 22nd, RBC Capital did the same. Now, I'm a big believer in the idea that you need to be wary when a stock runs dramatically going into the quarter. And all these supremely bullish analysts sure didn't help, but they loved the cloud. This was their cloud play. The cloud, the cloud. So when Autodesk reported last Tuesday night, it was already set up for failure. Unless the company delivered a perfect quarter, you better believe this stock was headed lower. And unfortunately, this time around, Autodesk gave you some real imperfections. Even though the sales were a tiny bit better than expected and the earnings loss was a penny smaller than we thought it would be, that's a smaller beat than we'd be accustomed to. The real problem, though, was the guidance. Autodesk's sales forecast for next quarter came in a bit weaker than the analysts had hoped, and the killer, the company cut... 
the high end of its full-year subscription forecast, taking from 650,000, it's a lot, right, down to 675,000, down to 650,000. So in other words, 25,000 lighter than expected. That's a lot of subs to not made. Adding insult to injury, Autodesk rolls out its restructuring plan. Remember, in the weeks leading up to the quarter, numerous analysts came out and sung this company's praises, talking about it's a great growth story in the cloud. Now, suddenly out of nowhere, it needs a restructuring plan. Management laying off 13% of its workforce to make the cloud transition work? I thought it was working. In August, they made it sound like the mood to the cloud was going great. During the Q&A session, four separate analysts had to ask questions about what this restructuring really means. As the CEO explained in the conference call, usually restructurings happen when a company is under some kind of external pressure. But he said this restructuring is really about funding the cloud transition so the company continued to evolve. To evolve. I mean, to me, it made the whole story much more complicated. Evolve? I mean, I thought the thing was roaring. Now, this may not sound like much, but consider Autodesk stock was up more than 75% for the year. It had run up 20 points just since the last earnings report. In that situation, you don't need to beat the numbers. You need to smash them to pieces. Instead, Autodesk delivered its smallest top and bottom line beaten ages and then cut that forecast. That said, the stock still has many defenders, with analysts of both J.P. Morgan and Morgan Stanley coming out, calling it a buying opportunity, even as a couple of other firms cut the price targets. So where do I come down about this stock and this company that literally caused, as I will talk about, this literally caused the big decline to start in tech? I say Autodesk stock got ahead of itself. But more than that, out of nowhere, this has become a show-me story. While I'm still a believer in the company's long-term prospects, I have less conviction than I did the last time Autodesk was at these levels over the summer. It's actually not as cheap as it was back then at the same level because we now have to deal with a whole new set of risks about the future. My verdict, if you own Autodesk, yeah, go hold it. Feel free to ring the register on part of it. Absolutely, though. And if you don't like this new level of uncertainty, I don't know if you but you think it's a buying opportunity, I suggest you be patient. I think you're going to get a better one. Laura in California. Laura. Hi, Jim. Hi, Laura. I'm an actual, hi. I'm an actual Words Plus member, and I just wanted you to know how much I appreciated the conference call today. That was a wild one, wasn't it? It went on for an hour and ten minutes. I couldn't believe I kept going, but I think people had – it had mojo, don't you think? Yeah. Yeah. It, was, it had the it mojo. Awesome. Thank okay. you. Um, well, I am really upset. Apparently, it's taken Naser Robotics over six months to disclose that their CEO is a suspect in an Israeli securities authority insider trading program. Yeah. How much Machiavellian? Not surprising, the stock is down on the news. So, Jim, I'm torn. On the one hand, you said this could be the next intuitive surgical. And on the other hand, the scandal makes it hard to trust this company. So I have a couple questions. Sure. One, how, how serious a charge is this? And is the stock still worth owning? Number two, will the stock price recover over time or should I sell? You know, I saw this. It came out in the news. I was with my Action Alerts team. And when the news came out about they were searching the CEO and you think about insider trading, I completely freaked out. But I will tell you this, Laura, I don't like accounting scandals. This is not an accounting scandal. And I do think the Mazer product is terrific. So I'm going to actually say stick with it. But they ought to either get rid of that guy or, you know, at least have him just take a leave of absence. I mean, because the product is great, but that was wrong that he did. That the, the, if, the, if the charges are true, maybe you should go. Let's go to Clinton in Florida. Clinton. 
Dr. Kramer, warm and sunny booyah from the Gulf Coast of Florida. Well, you know, I, I don't mind being a doctor in Jersey. What's going on? I'm calling about Arista. My father started looking at it uh, a couple months ago. Uh, when it was, was around 150, he bought it 190. It went up to 240 and back down into the low 210s. And I'm thinking of getting into it. I, I think you're right. About- Jay Shree, Jay Shree, who runs the company, Jay Shree is brilliant. And uh, she's been Cisco. And she has created a company that gives you networking solutions that are inexpensive and terrific. And I am in favor of you buying it. I have not visited that stock in a long time other than read the conference call. But wow, Jay Shree rocks. That stock is great. She is fantastic. And I think you should buy it. One of 2017's most beloved names lost his mojo. Autodesk is now a show me story. I would not be surprised if it goes even lower. And that hurts because I like Autodesk. Much more mad money ahead. I'm breaking bread with the founder of Panera. It's no longer public. To see what's ahead for the rest of the restaurant industry. Man, a week ago, there was talk that the cloud space could be saturated, all started by the Autodesk problems. Are the rumors true? I'm going to give you my take. And all your calls, rapid fire. Tonight's edition, the lightning round. So stick with Kramer. This year, Wall Street was pretty negative on the restaurant space. Aside from a handful of success stories like Kramer Fave McDonald's, most of the industry has been under pressure, weighed down by the rise of the stay-at-home economy. But lately, the group seems to have come back into vogue, and it's not just because of the tax bill, although that certainly helped, as restaurants are some of the highest taxpayers around. Even last month, the troubled Buffalo Wild Wings caught a takeover bid from a private equity firm. We need to understand how this industry is changing, whether the newfound positivity will be temporary or long-lasting, and I've got just the guide to explaining to us one of my heroes, Ron Shake, the co-founder and retiring CEO of Panera Bread, who took his own company private with the help of J.B. Holdings earlier this year, giving investors, get this, a 91% gain between when he returned as CEO in 2012 and the buyout. Mr. Shake, welcome back to Mad Money. Good to Great see you. Great to see you, Ron. Come Great here. to see you. You are terrific. You. you look fabulous. Thank you. All right. So what's wait, like? Wait, wait, wait. I got to get some things straight sure, here. Go right ahead. Ninety-two percent return. I had from over the beginning. Twenty years. Twenty-five percent annual appreciation. We grew at ninety-four hundred percent. All right. Now, but Thank duly you. noted. Give it? Duly okay. noted. Thank because you. Uh, that's the right focus. Ninety-four hundred. Now, let me ask you a question. Yes. Go ahead. Is it not a relief to not have to every quarter? plan for a conference call yes. where you then are peppered by, with questions by people who have never even made yes. one of your bread bowls yes. and don't even know how to sign up someone in your 25 million loyalty program and then have to respond yes. to the nitpicking? Yeah. Well, let's be clear. I still have three more weeks left as CEO, so <laughs> right. I'm not out of here until right. December 31st. But, but straight up, it's far better to do the kinds of transformative events that drove Panera's huge success far better to do it in the context of being a private company. The reality is Panera was able to drive the best performance in the restaurant industry for the last 20 years, twice Starbucks, four times Chipotle. We were able to do that because we transformed that company, our company, six different times. You go all the way back, we were a croissant shop, became a bakery cafe. We then went from there and made the bet on fast casual. We were the poster child. I then... Uh, sold Old Bon Pen and bet the right. entire thing on Panera. We then had the opportunity to be contrarian when everybody in the zeros were loading up on debt. We held back when the right. recession hit. We invested into the guest experience, saw our comps triple. 
We saw our stock triple. And then, as you said, I came back as CEO in 2010. We've been on digital, loyalty, delivery, and it worked. But, you know, I remember the gut-wrenching moments yes. when your son was in the mosh pit, mm-hmm. when you were doing 2.0 in North Carolina, when you were sitting there with one of your colleagues and you didn't like... And these were things that were best if you had been private because you well, admitted, and you were the only CEO ever admitted this, and it hurt your stock, but it was the truth. Yeah. I mean, here's the reality, Jim. We have increasingly moved into a world of pervasive short-termism. The yes. Yes. I was a public company CEO for 26 years. I did more quarterly earnings reports than Cal Ripken essentially was in all-star <laughs> games, all right? I mean, I, I did over 100 quarterly earnings re, uh, reports. Here's the reality of it. Increasingly, the markets have changed. 26 years ago, over half our stock traded in, in, in uh, held for over a year. Today, over half our stock is trading within one month. What's what? being, yes, yes. What's driving today's shareholdings are, are traders on the market. We had large shareholders like Capri, uh, yeah. Goldman Sachs, Barron Funds. Uh, but the reality is they don't drive the price. What drives the price are the traders who are betting on next week's comp. And that affects the entire organization. How do we change it? Well, it's really simple. Can you, can you help change it? I'm going to help what change it. What are you going to do? We're going to start to talk about what's gone on. Do you think this is good for economic growth? No, it's ridiculous. It's you and ridiculous. I both know that. How do you have innovation when CEOs are running around afraid, when they're concerned? You talked about Sally Smith and Buffalo Wild Wings. She was one of your heroes. She was great. She, she had worked a ten so bag. hard. She had a tough. People stopped, you know, started doing takeout. Yeah. She is a person who built a great institution. Great. Boom, she's out. Well, ten bagger over 15 years. So wrong. Yeah, right. And now she gets an activist that attacks her. Uh, she she called me when that happened. We talked, and we talked about drawing a line in the sand. She drew a line in the sand. You know what happened? They took a proxy fight against her. Her management supported her. Her franchisees supported her. She lost the proxy fight. The stock popped 10% for a couple of weeks, and then it fell 40%. And they were forced to sell the company for no more than it was trading at at the beginning. Wait, the the activist who pushed so hard, he didn't even get get it back to Exactly. Here's my point. It's not just happening in that company. Last week, it was Jack in the Box. It was Bloomin' Brands. Every week, it's somebody else. It isn't hard to walk in. And look at you and say, I got 2% of your stock. I got 6% in derivatives. I'm now your owner. I want you to cut your costs in half. I want you to lever up your balance sheet. We'll get the stock price up and we'll let somebody else worry about the carcass. Do you think someone's going to do that to Chipotle? I mean, Chipotle's obviously troubled. Well, look who's in there. Ackman's in there right now. Yeah. I I didn't know what his role is. I mean, they've got 10%. He's the largest shareholder. Right. And, and, you know, I mean, the reality is if we really want to build value in companies, we've got to take a long term view. The greatest competitive advantage of the FANG stocks, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix and Google, is they have the ability to be long term. Yes. And they have owners. Right. Well, they have a capital structure that's long term. You may know I was on the board of the board of directors of, of Whole Foods. Right. Amazon is now oh, bought. What they did to them, huh? Well, well, here's the here's the thing. What the do you John think? John Mackey built that company. An extraordinary job. So what do you th- No, he's still there. No, but, but I'm saying, you know, I mean, yes. he got the, that board hectored him and hectored him, and they've never run a supermarket. Well, exactly. But we had new competitive pressures. You have right. all kinds of pressure with Walmart and Target. I know. You had a number of things occurring. The reality is there was an effective plan to transition it. Do you know what Amazon is doing, from at least where I sit? They're doing the same plan that Whole Foods would have done. The difference is 
They have a capital structure that allows them to think long term. My right. point is the greatest competitive advantage Panera had, the reason we produced these results we did is because we could think long term. And the reason I took our company private is I'm increasingly worried about our ability to do that in a, in a, in a Politics is the best way to do this. You just come and chose to be a CNBC. I would love you to be a, you know, one, one of our guests, you know, a permanent guest. Is that the best I mean, way? No, I think the right way is really to talk about it, right? Okay. So I, I'm, I'm interested in, in really giving voice to this. I think that increasingly, we, if we're going to have change, we need to really express this. We need to recognize how these markets have changed. I think that you're in a situation where you have passive investors that are, uh, that are in these stocks. You've got a situation where you've got Glass-Lewis and ISS no, we gotta do this. rating it. And right. they're, they're rule-based. We need to be able to make judgments. Well, in June, I'm running a conference just about this issue from the insider side. Yeah. Time to let the companies do what they should. The great CEOs like you yeah. should be allowed to do what they do. That's Ron Shake, co-founder, chairman, and outgoing CEO of Panera Bread. Everything he said is so true. I hope you listen. We're going to be staying on this. This is a great theme. Man Money's back after the break. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Skate Daddy? Time for the lightning round. Let's start with Frank in Michigan. Frank. Kramer. Yo, yo. I've got a mobile internet tsunami playing with the house's money. You only need to get rich once. Booyah to you, Ski Daddy. Holy cow, that pretty much covers everything other than don't let a uh, game turn into a loss. What's up? You got her in uh, 2009 on your recommendation for $5.88. I bought Cadence Design Systems. What do I do? You hold it because, boy, it's smoking. How about that smoke show chart? Isn't it amazing? Cadence is, is a company that I learned about in the 90s and I'm sticking with. I like it. How about Ted in South Carolina, Ted? Okay. Booyah, Jim. Booyah, Ted. Uh, I'm interested in Teledyne Technologies. That is one great company. Why don't I talk about that company more? It's got all the instrumentation you need. you got a good stock there. Let's go to Rick in Pennsylvania. Rick. Hey, Jim. It's Rick from Harrisburg, Carlisle, Pennsylvania. There you go. Harrisburg. Can you beat that? What's going on? you got to fix that oh train station. Oh, my gosh. Carlisle Companies. All right, I, predict, I said to Carlisle two years ago in a seminar I gave, I thought the Carlisle should break up because it's got a whole bunch of companies under one roof. But you know what? It continues to work and churn higher. It is a great American industrial. I need to go to Tom in New York. Tom. Hello, Kramer. And from Brooklyn, New York. Yeah, where are you from? Come on. I'll buy a couple down at Bar San Miguel. We'll, get them. we'll knock back a couple of Medellas. What's going on? Yes. Uh, what is your take on Shake Shack? No, I'm a McDonald's guy, not just because I like Steve Easterbrook, because I also like Danny Meyer. But that stock is too expensive for me on a unit basis. I say hold off. It's had a nice run, though, on a short squeeze. Aram in New York. Aram. Booyah, Jim Kramer, my man. You're the myth, the man, the myth, the legend. Thanks a lot for all your great advice, Mr. Kramer. I have one stock for you, KTOS, sir. You, you should buy me there. Look, it's a defense stock. It goes up and down. It trades really badly, but I, I like the business very much, and that would matter. And thank you for those kind comments. It's pretty good. I wish my mom was still around. She would think, hey, maybe he's not so bad. Vince in New Jersey. Vince. 
Hi, uh, uh, Jim. This is uh, Vince from the Garden State. Perfect. I have a question regarding uh, Ford Motor. Even if every dog has its day, with a 4.85% yield and the possibility that they could be doing some pretty good stuff, some pretty good stuff with autonomous, but not yet. I think that Ford, and this is the first time I've done this in a long time, ah. is okay to buy. Particularly after that Chinese news is out. We got that bad news out. Mark in Maryland, Mark. Booyah, Jim. Uh, Booyah. Yeah, I'd like to know uh, your thoughts on BGCP. Ludwig's put together a good company. What can I say? It's done very, very well. It's up 60%, and I show no signs of the stock slacking off, or, or Howard, for that matter. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Where are we in the cloud adoption cycle? The single most important theme in technology investing. A week ago with the cloud stocks falling apart, I started hearing that we're at some sort of saturation point. Every company, every industry, every geography has enough data centers to handle all of the business. That's what I heard. So we lost one of the great secular growth trends of our time and a principal prop for the bull market. What convinced everyone that we'd reached saturation? I think it all started on, on November 28th when Autodesk, the computer-aided design software company I profiled earlier, the one that's transitioning to the cloud, hit a wall. The Autodesk disappointment was shocking, and it was reminiscent of that day in February of, la of last year when Tableau software symbol data and LinkedIn, remember them, they're now private, blew up at the same time, taking down everything in the cloud. Autodesk was red hot, it sputtered, and everyone freaked out about the cloud. Now, in 2016, it took four weeks for buyers to decide that the destruction of Tableau and LinkedIn wasn't the end of the world and the cloud was still growing. In fact, it was a pause that refreshed because LinkedIn soon got a bid from Microsoft and Tableau was reframed as more of a static data analytics company than a real-time cloud machine. Autodesk is not a perfect analog for other cloud plays. The computer-aided design space is unusual. Most of the business is still from old-school software licenses. But the market's reaction has been remarkably similar to those days in February 2016. So I've been taking to asking everyone, including those down the food chain, like the Data Center Real Estate Investment Trust. We had one on last night. Or analytics companies like Alteryx. We had them last night, which came on the show. And if there really is some sort of cloud slowdown that we just don't know about, I've surveyed the big cloud infrastructure companies like Google, Amazon, Microsoft, and IBM, as well as the ones that facilitate the cloud, VMware, Adobe, Red Hat, Salesforce, and even the semiconductor companies that are part of the cloud food chain because they power so many data centers. And these are all household names for what we talk about on the show, whether it be a Broadcom, whether it be an AMD, whether it be an Intel, I'm checking them all out. The answer from pretty much everyone in the industry is the same. It's simple. The idea that the cloud has reached saturation is absurd. We have about 10% cloud adoption in this country. Much of it is suggesting the financial and retail sectors, and even those aren't that saturated. There's a little bit in healthcare, a small portion of it in the Internet of Things. 10%. That may be overstating it. It's nothing. If anything, given the prevalence of older forms of storing data, expensive on-premise servers that are more costly and have less analytics horsepower than the cloud, I bet we could have years of growth ahead of us. Even better, for those who think the 10% is too close to 100%, China is perhaps the second most penetrated country when it comes to the cloud, and it's only about a 2 to 3%, a ridiculously low amount, considering the rise of Chinese e-commerce and the millions of people who are there. 
Sure, there have been periodic glitches in those who provide hardware for the cloud. For example, we know there's been a pause in some data center build-outs as NVIDIA starts to ship its faster, smaller, less heat-intensive chips. I, I wouldn't be surprised if many data center players are holding off on buying new hardware until they get the kick the tires of the NVIDIA chip. AMD and Intel have competing products. Everyone seems to be interested in what NVIDIA is up to. You know what? I think the opportunity is so immense here that there's room for all of these chip makers. Meanwhile, there indeed might be a little too much flash memory in the system. The inventory overhang theory that Katie Huber, the analyst from Morgan Stanley, put into our heads 10 days ago. How could there not be a slowdown, is what people are saying, in the data center if flash prices are coming down, right? Wrong. Flash is a commodity with its own supply and demand cycle. And even if it wasn't trying to extrapolate from the hardware side to the software side of this story, it may be a mistake. The whole point of the cloud is that you need to spend less on hardware because it's more efficient to cluster everything together in a data center. So after all my canvassing, I come back and say that while there might be some speed bumps in cloud adoption, we're still very much at the beginning of a massive long-term shift, one that's growing faster than anything else in tech, which is why I like so much Amazon, and I like so much Microsoft, and I like so much Alphabet. It's why I use the weakness to buy every one of those and nearly everything else in the cloud food chain except Flash, which we know could be about to suffer. And as I mentioned earlier, I want to be cautious about Autodesk after its disappointment. But for nearly everything else in the cloud, including the three big guys I mentioned, I say don't give up the ship. It's barely left the dock. Stick with Kramer. After the close, two unbelievably good reports that could actually do some things positive for tomorrow. We got Lululemon with a massive upside surprise and a big guide up for comparable store sales. Really amazing. And then Broadcom, wow, tentacles and all sorts of tech, blow out quarter. Charitable Trust owns it. Like I said, there's always a bull market summer. I promise you to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I'll see you tomorrow. I want people to feel like they just learned something. We have journalists in the far corners of the universe. I can't wait to get all of those resources under one hour long newscast where we can deliver the facts of the day clearly and concisely in context and with perspective and tell people what's happening, what it all means. Get the truth, not the spin. The News with Shepard Smith. Subscribe to the podcast today.